Hello, and welcome to Gap and Wrap Biosimilar Series, a joint venture between the gastroenterology and hepatology advanced practice providers and the rheumatology advanced practice providers. I'm Gabriella McCarty, your host for today, and this marks our final episode in this enlightening series as we dive into the heart of biosimilars, discussing them with our patients. The science, the benefits, the concerns. How do we communicate all this effectively? To delve into this crucial topic, we're honored to have with us Jamie Brogan, who is an expert in our field. Welcome, Jamie. For those who aren't familiar with you, would you mind giving us a quick introduction? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gabriella. I'm really excited to be here for our last episode of the Biosimilars series. I've really enjoyed the previous episodes so much, and I've learned a ton from all the wonderful experts you've had on joining you. So I hope we can continue things and end on a high note. So yes, my name is Jamie Brogan. I am a nurse practitioner. I have been working at Northwestern in the Digestive Health Center with the Inflammatory Bowel Disease team and on outpatient basis for the last 10 years or so. I've been involved with the transition of biosimilars and helping to navigate a bunch of the educational tools we're using at our facility, which is wonderful. I'm very proud to be a member of GAP and have been since its inception. Um, so very proud of that uh, society and how we've seen it grow. And then I'm also involved in a host of other educational organizations within my department with at Northwestern and also nationally. So um, I really enjoy having the opportunity to connect with my colleagues so we can all learn from each other. Well, that's great. We are so lucky to have you. And yeah, I think we've been together since the beginning of GAP as well. Mm -hmm. So it's exciting. So um, before we jump into our conversation, a quick note to our dedicated listeners. While the series concludes today, our quest for knowledge does not end. So make sure to follow GAPcast and RAPcast for continuing insights in gastroenterology and hepatology, as well as rheumatology. So with that said, let's delve deep into into today's topic. Are you ready, Jamie? I sure am. All right. So one of the questions, um, an issue is like communicating biosimilars to patients, explaining what they are. Uh, A question that we get pretty regularly is, what are biosimilars? How do they differ from their originator biologics? So Jamie, how do you go about answering that question? Absolutely. So that's a question I hear often from our patients. Uh, I am very blessed to have a high health literacy patient population that are rather engaged in their care for the most part. So many of them actually come to me having heard of biosimilars versus me introducing the topic to them, and they just want our thoughts on it. I usually start by explaining that a biosimilar is as chemically similar to the original product as we can get, and that the only difference between the originator and the biosimilars are in the stabilizers and buffers, which have no impact on their clinical benefits or risks, and that we expect the same clinical benefits and risk panel as we would with the originator. As I transition patients from their originator to a biosimilar, I tell my patients that my biggest concern is that there would be any delay 
because when I have you on infliximab or I have you on adalumumab, I'm still going to be continuing your same dose and frequency schedule of infliximab or adalumumab. It's just going to be coming from a different company. So my prerogative is to keep you on schedule on dose without delays, and also to make sure that you're enrolled in the cost savings programs that are offered by the pharmaceutical company creating that medication in order to make sure that there aren't any unexpected out-of-pocket costs, that you're still getting help with your copay, and that you're still getting some of those wonderful extra benefits from those programs that we've all come to be so grateful for. Well, that's a great answer. And yeah, um, the bottom line is I tell patients it's prescribed the same. There's no change in the dosage or how we're going to monitor you. Um, a lot of patients do ask, you know, well, this is, this is the same as a generic. And again, um, I try to touch on that these are, you know, complex to develop. They're larger molecules. It's, it's not the same as like a generic for Prilosec, omeprazole. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, cost is the number one issue. Um, patients sometimes ask other than, you know, is it going to work and things like that. Mm -hmm. So the next question um, we'll touch on is what are some of the common misconceptions or fears that patients have regarding biosimilars that you've experienced? And to follow that up, how do you go about overcoming these misconceptions? Well, I think, of course, the idea that uh, a patient, well, just to take a step back, patients with inflammatory bowel disease at some point in their life, the vast majority of them have gone through a profound amount of trauma. They have had frequent bowel movements. They're terrified to go on dates, go out with their friends. They've had to take time off of work or heaven forbid had an accident when they were not in a place where they were uh, able to have privacy. So um, these are extremely traumatic for patients. And even once you get them into a state of remission, that fear of relapse is overwhelming to many patients. And so that fear, when they are finally stable, is that fear of flare. How can you guarantee that I'm going to stay safe? I can't go back to the way I was before. I don't want to risk losing my colon or having to have a surgery. You know, all of these, these fears that you can just see the pain and anxiety in these patients is, is to really alleviate the fears that these are still made by reputable pharmaceutical companies. And I'll start to list some of the amazing companies that I know my patients are going to recognize those names to provide a little bit of, of ease of mind on that one. I always mention that these are very complex medications to create. They require a tremendous amount of pharmacodiligence, I'm sorry, pharmacovigilance to make sure that these, these are going through at a very high degree of monitoring to ensure their quality of medication and that these are just as safe as the original product, and they are just as effective, which we have tested over and over in clinical trials. And we are 
fortunate in this country uh, that we also are able to look across the pond over to Europe. We're able to look to our North neighbors in Canada to see many of these countries have adapted biosimilars and transitioned their patients and have a host of data to, to really give us some robust numbers to really alleviate some of those concerns. So, and of course, making sure that you're making yourself available to them as a provider. You know, if you're having any concerns, if you have any symptoms, you should always be reaching out to me. I also want to make sure that they're in a place of stability. If somebody's in, recently started on one medication, they're still not endoscopically stable or clinically stable. We want to make sure that we're making sure our patients are in a good place for transition so we don't have any unexpected variables at play during this. So, um, I think just making sure that they know that we as providers are aware of biosimilars, that we're confident in their efficacy and safety, that we are expecting this. And, and quite frankly, we're happy that, that biosimilars are finally here so that we can start treating patients with a little bit more cost-effective view that will potentially alleviate some of the healthcare burden, which we're hoping will improve access to our patients. I mean, I personally would like to see that the prior authorization process is somewhat less complicated moving forward, especially when we're talking about maybe some off-label dosing that might happen in our facility. Uh, but also the, you know, at some point we could even potentially see premiums for patients going down. So cost-effective care is really something that as a society, we all need to be invested in and that this is an important and safe step forward in that direction. Those are all really great points, Jamie. And just what you said, taking a step back and remembering what these patients have gone through, because of course, most of our IBD patients are diagnosed as young adults. So it's when they're, you know, in high school or going to college or getting married, getting their first job, having kids, and just taking that step back and remembering where they're coming from and getting to know your patients, keeping communication open. I follow up with my IBD patients on any type of advanced therapy every six months, no matter what, even if they're feeling great, um, just to chat, see how they're doing. And I feel like you can catch some of their early um, changes in their disease uh, just by sitting down and talking to them. So, so totally all agree. really great points. Uh, for our listeners um, that are not familiar with the nocebo effect, uh, I would recommend watching our last episode, which was specifically regarding that. But as a reminder, the nocebo effect in short is when a patient's negative perception of a therapy causes a treatment to have a worse outcome than would otherwise be expected. Jamie, what strategies can healthcare providers employ to minimize or prevent the nocebo effect when transitioning a patient to a biosimilar? I am so glad you asked that question. In fact, so when I first started talking about biosimilars, learning about biosimilars, you know, of course, we're all the number one question, is it safe? Is it effective? And then, oh, it's going to be less cost. This is a good thing. But when I was when I was doing a presentation about biosimilars, I came across this whole idea of the nocebo effect. And I didn't realize how profound its effect specifically on biosimilars really is. And 
I believe the number was 83.6% of patients withdraw from biosimilars because of the nocebo effect, which as you just defined, is really not a clinically viable reason to, it's, it's a belief that the medication is not working as well. Um, and this is all stemming from what we've looked into, a lack of understanding of biosimilars and this this misconception that it's a lower quality product because now, oh, now it's generic and it's not the same. We're like, well, it's not a generic, first of all. And, you know, as, as we've defined in previous episodes, the difference between a generic and a biosimilar, but making sure that we're being proactive about educating our patients on this. And you might say, Jamie, we don't know when they're going to switch. They may never have to. So we don't know until the payer tells us they want to switch. And I completely understand that. And that's how we were functioning with our initial transitions to biosimilars when infliximab was first um, started uh, being created as biosimilars. But with the continued release of biosimilars. And yes, Ustikinumab now also has a biosimilar that was recently approved. We are going to see this trend continue. And we are going to hope that with the increased use of biosimilars, we will also see an increase in the competitive market of biosimilars and decrease the cost of them overall. So making sure that we are able to move forward with this it's going to rely upon making sure that we as providers understand biosimilars. We know the names of the biosimilars and the companies that create those biosimilars, the programs that are being offered, as well as um, making sure that we have a program set up to educate our patients. And one thing I was mentioning in a team meeting um, with our providers at Northwestern was I, I mentioned it to any patient that's been coming in to see me that is on infliximab or adalumumab. I'll tell them like, say, hey, biosimilars are here. I want you to be aware of them. We're not changing anything right now, but there is a potential within the next few months or a few years that your payer may prefer one of these other pharmaceutical products of adalumumab. So utilizing that word adalumumab, using the word infliximab to make sure that you're reminding the patient, because we've all been using the brand, the originator brand names for so long, um, to start using those other names for them. But even one of our nurses really helped by creating um, a message that went out to every single patient that was on, or had a prescription on file for adalumumab, informing them of biosimilar so that they started to hear about it. If they wanted to reach out to us, we were open to setting up additional telephone calls or telemedicine visits to discuss them to make sure that they were aware so that when they get a letter in the mail saying their transition, their their payer is transitioning them or has a pay preference to transition them to a biosimilar, the patient doesn't feel as though they've been backed into a corner or being forced into something. And they can feel confident that they've, they already knew this was coming. They expected it. They're fine with it because their provider is fine with it. And I think that has been really helpful. I have had very few phone calls since the original launches of high, high degree of, of reservations. Those are all really great points. Yeah, using the, you know, adalimumab or infliximab instead of the brand name is great. And then just being transparent with patients and keeping communication open from early on, you know, when, when you're even starting something that 
this could be something coming down the line, depending on your insurance. And obviously, you know, biosimilars are not going anywhere. I feel like I'm seeing a new rep every week for a new biosimilar. So they're going to be here, they're going to be around. So just being transparent and open with your patients, I think is um, the bottom line. Well, one more point, I'm so sorry that I also want to make about the nocebo effect is that if the patient feels as though they've lost response because they're on a biosimilar, making sure that you're re-educating them on stride two guidelines, that you're doing your due diligence to evaluate for any inflammatory elevation in their mar- in their biochemical markers to alleviate any of those concerns re-educating them on biosimilars, because if they really are going to stop this agent, and sometimes they just stop because they, mm-hmm. patients do that, they have now lost that entire drug line. And um, due to risk of immunogenicity, we don't want to lose things because of loss of education. And so this this nocebo effect could play into that. And with the numbers yeah. that we were seeing, we're really hoping those will go down. Um, that is just something I want to make sure that people are keeping in mind. Yes. Yeah. And I have had a couple patients that just swear their symptoms got worse when they were switched over. And, you know, and at that point, you just document and you can appeal, you know, if needed Mm -hmm. for the the brand name. So yeah, and we've had to do that a couple Mm -hmm. of times. Um, But actually, it's been, I think it's been a couple years since I've had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So the more transparent you are, yeah, and patients are expecting this potentially down the line, I think, um, just the education and communication, really. Mm-hmm. So in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the benefits of biosimilars. What benefits do you think patients are most interested in? And how do you go about discussing these, Jamie? Um, so I think I think the benefits are really more societal because you know that we are really looking at the benefit of being cost and options. And we're going to, I mean, I think the goal for biosimilars was to hope to drive down the cost of biologics by, you know, maybe up to 40%. And we haven't seen it get that high yet. It's about the 10, maybe 20% at best, Mark, depending on the data that you're looking at. So The cost uh, society is really the number one benefit we're going to see. I think another benefit that that maybe gets overlooked is is the quality of these medications is really the same. And so making sure that people, they may not see it as something new that's better as a benefit, but it is the the confidence and consistency I think shouldn't be overlooked um, as well. So when I talk to patients about the benefit of biosimilars, you know, this is going to improve the access to these medications for you. And especially for patients who are transitioning into Medicare and um, will not have access to some of the copay programs, the the total cost is going to be an, an impact for them. And that's, you know, such a special population that has, has usually fixed incomes. And so we really need to be um, thinking about that particular patient population um, that I think is going to probably see this benefit sooner than, than our commercial payers are. But um, overall, I think this cost is going to, is really the number one benefit. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, again, medication will only work if you take it, right? And if it's not going to be covered and, you know, at that point, patients on a steroid, they feel better and then you've lost them (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they don't want to take it. And then also, um, and we'll go into the last question, but I wanted to mention, um, 
another question patients always ask, is it safe? You know, Mm -hmm. and again, it's just going back to that. This is not clinically different. We're monitoring you the same safety is no, you know, no different as well. Um, So usually even hash that out just even more. So we haven't seen anything. I said, there's no new safety signals. Yes. Nobody has had any new things that we didn't previously see with the originator, but infection specific, you know, and I'll name some of the infections that we talk about you know, upper respiratory infections and pneumonia and fungal infection. These are all consistent numbers that we've seen with the originator. And so we don't expect you to have any difference in your level of immune suppression than you would on the originator. Cause it right. again is the same molecule. Yes. That would be a good whole other topic, Jamie, to go <laughs> over how you go over the PI with the patient. <laughs> Because they go home and they read the PI and they're like, I am never going on this medication. I actually, we created similar to the, to the phrase about biosimilars. We have created documents that we can all use together as a team to send to patients. And I I joke that I'm like, so you're starting on infliximab or so you're starting on adalumumab, but it's what we want the patient to know and understand. And it has a good amount of detail, but it's also very real life. And it's specific to us when we want you to follow up the test that you're going to get and why a direct hyperlink to the cost savings and support programs from the pharmaceutical company. And with the Adalumab, it has all the different companies listed with hyperlinks to each of them. Um, and then ways for their follow-up questions so that, and then we advise and say, Hey, you know, this kind of information from the pharmaceutical site can sometimes be a little overwhelming. We'd rather talk to you through it or potentially go we're happy for you to do your own research. We would advocate that you use a source such as the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation um, for more information and make sure that that is accurate. So that's just another tool we use to help guide that conversation to avoid any, I'm going to, you know, you listen to the commercials and they're like terrified. Right, right. No, those are great points. Um, So lastly, we've asked every guest on the series this question because we think it's an important one and want to get multiple perspectives, both from GI and rheumatology APPs. What is the most frequent question you get from patients about biosimilars and how do you answer it? I think it's probably the same everybody's probably already said. (laughs) Is it safe and will I flare? This, yes. as I mentioned at the beginning, that fear of flaring. And, you know, I've been with many of my patients for years and I've been on this journey and seen where they've come from. And, you know, being able to speak to it directly said, I remember you, you know, missed, you know, Christmas with your family that year, or you had that big meeting and it was, you weren't able to attend and you thought it affected your career or whatever it was, you know, this medicine is what got you out of that. And I'm just continuing it. Right. And that's what we're going to do together. Yep. And those are the same questions I get. I'm sure everybody's answered that uh, pretty much the same way. And we've talked about how to alleviate patients' fears and, and things like that. So any other comments on that? Any, any other questions that you can think of that patients ask? I mean, they, they'll ask sometimes about cost, I think, with a little bit of a nervous laugh, mm-hmm. wondering if their drug is going to be extremely inexpensive now. And, you know, I still address it like it's a real question, even though they act like they're not really asking. But I remind, I said, you know, these are actually really, biologics are really special products that are 
take a lot of work and step-by-step process. To be quite frank, they're very expensive medications to create, regardless of whether they're the originator or the biosimilar. They are not inexpensive in any way, shape, or form. This is just a way for us to improve not how the drug is made as a biosimilar. It changes how the drug gets to you. And that's really where we're seeing the cost savings. So the quality is the same as the originator. Yes. And just explaining that, yes, these are rigorously studied and, um, you know, in clinical trials and all of that. So... Well, that was wonderful. I mean, that wraps up our final episode of the GAP and RAP Biosimilar series. A huge thank you to Jamie Brogan for sharing such invaluable insights on discussing biosimilars with patients. Well, thank you so much, Gabriella, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I hope our discussion today helps APPs and GI and room understand some ways to communicate with their patients regarding biosimilars or give them some ideas um, to consider on how to speak to patients about it and each other, speaking to each other to make sure that we are all comfortable with how we're talking about it and educating. It's also going to transcend to our educational time with our patients. Yes, no doubt it will, Jamie. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us on this journey. Remember, while the series has concluded, the conversations continue. Be sure to follow GAPCAST and RAPCAST for a deep dive into gastroenterology, hepatology, and rheumatology topics. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the GAP and RAP Biosimilars podcast series and to the series in general. And I'd like to say thank you to Pfizer and Amgen one final time. Without their continued support of APP education, this podcast would not even be possible. So please see our show notes for learning objectives from this episode and fill out our evaluation so that we can receive feedback. Bidding you farewell, this is Gabriella McCarty. (laughs) 